Um, hello, everybody um, that's tuning in. Uh, my name is Tim Koo. I'm a solicitor with the Children's Legal Service um, based out at Parramatta. Um, I've been with Legal Aid since 2008, and I'm an accredited specialist in children's law. I'm recording this podcast today um, with Diane Elston. Diane, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Tim. Um, so I'm a solicitor in the high-risk offender unit, and I was fortunate to join Legal Aid in September of 2019. And like Tim, I'm also an accredited specialist, but in criminal law. Fantastic. So today the podcast um, that we want to talk to you all about um, is about the Child Protection Register. Um, we're going to be covering the register and some um, related issues like child protection um, prohibition orders and also talking a little bit about the recent LEC um, review into the Child Protection Register. Um, if you um, are tuning into this podcast, there's a high chance that you've listened to some of Legal Aid's um, other podcasts, including the most recent one, um, that Caitlin Akhtar and Ruth Cardi did about um, the new regime about sexual offences. Um, this is a natural follow-up um, from that podcast, and we'll be touching a little bit um, on some of the legislation that um, Caitlin and Ruth spoke about um, in that podcast. Um, what we will try to do is give you some um, practical tips and um, hints um, for what to do when you're appearing for children and adults um, that um, are at risk of um, registration um, or that are already um, on the register. Um, so one of the um, best places to start, I suppose, is looking at the LEC, the LEC report. Um, Diane, did you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the um, Law Enforcement Conduct Commission, which we refer to in short as LEC, in 2019 reported to Parliament that the New South Wales Police had made systemic errors report in terms of calculating reporting periods and also identifying people who are registrable persons. Um, the LEC report is publicly available on the Law Enforcement Conduct Commission website. Some of the errors that have been identified have enormous ramifications for our clients and these include um, at least 43 errors of people being added to the register where they should not have been and at least 144 cases where people have been required to report pursuant to the register for longer than they should have been. New South Wales have identified some errors and contacted, sorry, New South Wales Police have identified some matters which errors have been made and sent letters to notify potentially aggrieved people. As I mentioned, the errors that have been identified, um, there may be more people than those who have been identified so far. Some of the consequences that flow from those errors are reporting personal information unnecessarily, um, being unlawfully searched pursuant to um, the Section 16C powers, being prosecuted for failing to report or reporting false information, and critically, being unlawfully imprisoned for offences such as 
breaching the reporting obligations or reporting false information. Some may have even had child protection prohibition order proceedings made against them on an invalid basis. At the moment, it is really incumbent on practitioners to first advise their client how long they will, re will be reporting so that they know what is required of them. Hopefully, this will equip your client to query any inconsistent notification provided by New South Wales Police in respect of their reporting period when they first report or in reviewing any further correspondence they receive from New South Wales Police. If you encounter somebody who is already reporting, you can take the opportunity to establish for yourself whether they are a registrable person and how long they should be reporting. Although this is creating extra work for practitioners, at present, it is the best safety net we have to detect um, errors that have not already been identified. If you become aware of an error, please notify Harriet Ketley of the Criminal Law Executive to ensure that Legal Aid can keep a record of those errors. And just before I hand back over to Tim, I wanted to mention it very briefly a case study that is that demonstrates I wanted to mention a case study about how you can detect these errors and what you can do in response. When I worked in private practice, I had the opportunity to review a matter which a person had been required to report for 15 years because of two charges that related to child abuse material. Now, instead of calculating the reporting period as eight years because those two offences occurred within a 24-hour period, the police did not carefully consider the time period specified in the court attendance notices and the fact sheet. And had it not been for my client being proactive and engaging a private practitioner to advocate on his behalf and seek review of that decision, he would have been required to report for an additional seven years. So the errors are really important to be aware of and be proactive in terms of directing your client to appropriate legal recourse. Yeah, thanks, Diane. It's a really good reminder that um, sometimes we expect these things to um, be 100% correct um, all of the time, and it's obviously um, human error um, is prevalent, um, particularly around this area where the legislation um, is um, so complex. Um, look, it's clear that being on the register is extremely um, onerous, um, and for that reason, um, it's really important that people have at least a baseline knowledge about what's involved in being on the Child Protection Register um, from the early stages of advising your client um, about the matter. Um, I just want to give a, a brief case study or example about um, how this um, can go wrong um, if somebody's not aware um, of um, the Child Protection Register implications. Um, 
So a little while ago, um, we received a youth hotline call um, from a young boy and his family, um, and they called because two weeks after he was sentenced to a probation order in the children's court, um, the police approached him to be placed on the child protection register, um, and that took him and the family completely by surprise, um, as he had never been advised about going onto the register at all. Um, so in the course of him and the family explaining to me what had happened, it turned out that when he was 12 years old, he was charged with a Section 61J offence um, against another child. Um, the family obtained um, private representation um, for the matter. Throughout the course of the matter, his representatives were aware um, that he was Dolly Incapax and that was going to be an issue, a further element of the offending that the Crown would have to rebut um, for, um, to secure a conviction. However, on the day of his hearing, um, the solicitor and barrister um, told the family that if the child wanted to proceed with the hearing, um, that they would require further payment. Um, the other option was that notwithstanding the Dolly Incapax issue, if the child decided to plead guilty, um, he would get a non-custodial sentence and no conviction. Given the financial strain the family was already under, um, the decision was made to plead guilty and he received a probation order, um, as predicted. Regrettably, however, um, the issue of the register um, was never raised with the young person or the family at all. Um, but because of his plea, he was in fact subject to automatic registration and reporting obligations for a period of seven and a half years. He was also not advised that notwithstanding the fact that the Children's Court couldn't technically record a conviction, um, Section 5 and Section 7 of the Criminal Records Act say that because he pleaded to a prescribed sexual offence, he would have a conviction, and more so that he would have a conviction that could never be spent. So that just goes to highlight how important um, knowledge um, of the Child Protection Register and the implications are um, in terms of um, giving our clients appropriate advice throughout the course of the matter. Um, that story ultimately did have a happy ending, but from the time of that hotline call, it was about 12 months and a lot of hard work from his new solicitor to fix, um, but that child was ultimately um, removed um, from the register. So the question that follows... Um, immediately from, you know, how important is it to know about the register is, well, how does somebody go on um, the Child Protection Register? And there's two main ways that a, a person can end up on the um, register. The most common path is um, automatic registration, which results from a person being sentenced um, for a registrable offence or for registrable offences. Now, registrable offences are defined in the Act um, as either Class 1 or Class 2 offences. Class 1 offences generally involve sexual intercourse with a child, so we're talking charges like um, Section 66A, um, Section 66C, um, Section 61J um, involving a child. I should also highlight that when we talk about the Act, we're referring um, to the Act being the Child Protection Offenders Registration Act of 2000. Where the Act refers to a child, um, they're also referring to a person who's under the age of 18, um, even though the age of consent um, is 16. Class 2 offences are most often offences like sexual touching or sexual acts, which are previously defined as acts of indecency or indecent assaults committed against children. There are other Class 2 offences that are not explicitly sexual, though, like a Section 86 taken to tame um, of a child. And this distinction between Class 1 offences and Class 2 offences um, becomes really important later, um, as we will further discuss. Um, the other path to registration is by something called manual registration. Um, Diane, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Thanks, Tim. So, just to flag, the terms 
automatic manual registrate, sorry, just to flag the terms automatic registration and manual registration are terms which we have developed to describe the way the Act operates. The manual registration we are referring to are applications that can be made to the sentencing court or the local court um, after somebody is convicted or sentenced for an offence that is not a Class 1 or Class 2 offence because in the case of a Class 1 or Class 2 offence, they would automatically become a registrable person but for those exceptions in relation to children. So these applications to the court are becoming increasingly common based on anecdotal evidence and there is a real need for practitioners to be aware of the law surrounding these applications so that they can respond accordingly. Now, I've recently became interested in these matters because I had the opportunity to review um, and had the opportunity to review a matter which a client was represented in the local court in response to an application to add him to the child protection register. He had no criminal history of offending against children and the practitioner who represented him indicated his consent to the application. He was added to the register and is now subject to an interim child protection prohibition order and there are ongoing proceedings in the local court. What you need to take away from the topic of manual registration is that a person can be added at the time of being sentenced for a non-class 1 or class 2 offence or they can be subject to an application made within 60 days to the local court after they have been convicted of an offence or sentenced for a Commonwealth offence. The test is that the local court, sorry, the test is that the court is satisfied that the person poses a risk to the lives or sexual safety of one or more children or children generally. Even after the court is satisfied of a risk, if they come to that conclusion, adding the person to the register is still discretionary. Legal aid funding is available for these matters as a criminal local court grant and clients should be represented by a criminal law practitioner despite these proceedings falling in the special jurisdiction of the local court and the civil rules of evidence applying. And finally, your client cannot consent to becoming a registrable person pursuant to these applications. The court must engage in an independent evaluation of risk on the evidence which your client may or may not object to. Your client can also run a positive defence and adduce expert evidence of risk. Um, and in the case of legally aided clients, um, that is on the provision that appropriate funding has been approved. 
if you encounter one of these matters, please feel free to contact me to discuss it further. Um, okay, so that's, that's how um, people can end up on the Child Protection Register. There's two ways we've talked about automatic registration um, and manual registration. Um, but as practitioners, um, primarily for legal aid, um, we're interested, um, obviously, in how people can avoid um, going on the register, particularly children, given how onerous the obligations are. So there are, in fact, um, two um, rules um, that are different um, for children in terms of how children can avoid going on the register. Um, so the first way that a child um, can avoid being a registrable person is if there's a single class two offence exception. Um, so that's a mouthful, um, but I will go on to define it hopefully in simpler terms in a moment. Um, the second way that a child can avoid being a registrable person is by way of a magistrate or judge exercising a discretion pursuant to Section 3, capital C, um, to treat them as a non-registrable person. So dealing firstly with the single class 2 exception, what does that mean? So Section 3, capital A of the Act um, indicates that a person will not be a registrable person if, as a child, they committed a single offence of sexual touching or a sexual act or a single act under Section 91, capital H, which is a sexting type offence, um, or a single offence of voyeurism or filming. Now, that section needs to be read in conjunction with Subsection 5, which is really important, um, as it says that a single offence in this section includes a reference to more than one offence of the same kind arising from the same incident. So if there was one course of conduct that included, for example, three separate charges of sexual touching, um, against the same complainant, this would be considered as a single offence um, for the purpose of the Act and the child would not be a registrable person. The Section 3 definitions of the Act define that offences arising from the same incident um, will be defined as such if they're committed within a 24-hour period and against the same person. Um, there's a good analysis um, of this single Class 2 exception um, and the same kind exception um, in KE and the Commissioner of Police and Others, 2018, New South Wales Supreme Court, 941. Um, so that's the first exception as it relates to children. The second one is Section 3, capital C, and it's a new exception which was added towards the end of 2018. And it confers upon a sentencing magistrate or judge a discretion to not treat a juvenile offender as a registrable person in circumstances where otherwise automatic registration would follow. So these are the necessary preconditions for uh, the discretion to be exercised. Um, firstly, that the person was a child when they committed the offence, that the victim was under 18 at the time of the offence, that the person has no prior convictions for registrable offences, that a control order or term of imprisonment is not imposed unless it's a, sp a suspended sentence, um, which is still um, a sentencing option available in the children's court. And lastly, that the court is satisfied that the person does not pose a risk to the lives or sexual safety of one or more children or children generally. It's the same um, test um, that Diane spoke about before. Now, that term sexual safety is defined in Section 3, capital A, um, capital A of the Act, and I encourage you um, to have a look at that. It's worth noting that the Section 3, um, Section 3C discretion only applies to sexual offences, though. It does not apply... Um, to other Class 2 offences that might otherwise lead to automatic registration, like a Section 86, take and detain a child. Now, there's limited case law 
um, in relation to um, this discretion. Um, however, a sensible reading of the Act would indicate that the onus um, is borne by the accused, um, given it's a discretion, and um, otherwise um, automatic registration applies. And the standard of proof would appear to be on the balance of probabilities. So there's three practical tips I've got for you if you're representing children um, who are at risk of registration. Um, firstly, you should um, consider alternative charges like offensive conduct or willful and obscene exposure. Um, it would also be worth bearing in mind the time limits that apply to those uh, matters being summary offences, so they've got six months um, to be laid. Secondly, it's worth negotiating the time periods, um, keeping in mind the single class two exception um, that's available to children. So if there were multiple offences against the same complainant that, appear, that occurred over a vague period of time, if it could be negotiated that they all occurred within a 24-hour period of time, then the single class two exception uh, may apply. Thirdly, is I would encourage you to make a Section 3 capital C application for a magistrate or judge to exercise their discretion. Um, it has become my practice um, to only make this application, though, after the sentence has been imposed. Um, the reason I do this is to prevent any further evidence that the Crown may wish to produce in opposition to the application being considered by the magistrate or judge before imposing the sentence. So consider that there may be circumstances where there is prejudicial and inadmissible material um, for the purposes of a sentencing hearing um, that the magistrate would not otherwise have access to, um, but may be relevant and may be admissible in relation to a Section 3 application. You would not want the magistrate to consider that further prejudicial material um, prior to imposing the sentence. Um, you would want them to only consider that application, um, that evidence, on the basis of the, the application which you would make um, afterwards. Important timing-wise in terms of making the application. Yeah, and the, the only other thing I would suggest in relation to making a Section 3 application is it, it's worthwhile, if you can get um, approval, um, to get a psychological report from an expert to assess a child's risk um, it's not something that's routinely done um, in juvenile justice background reports and it will greatly assist um, the young person um, to have material from an expert and before the magistrate saying, for example, that they are a low risk um, of reoffending. Um, so those are the exceptions that exist in relation to children. Um, Diane, are there any ways that adults can avoid um, automatic registration? Significantly less than those which apply to children. Um, for adults, where charges are dismissed without conviction pursuant to um, the Mental Health Forensic Provisions Act or the um, new amending legislation, the Mental Health and Cognitive Impairment Forensic Provisions Act 2020, um, which, of course, a conviction is not imposed, they will not become a registrable person. Or New South Wales offences where the criminal sentencing law applies and an order is made to sentence the person without conviction, for example, a conditional release order without conviction, they would not become a registrable person. But significantly... Um, for Commonwealth offences that are, for Commonwealth offences 
which a person is sentenced without conviction, they will still become a registrable person. So the same exceptions for Commonwealth offences that apply to state offences. Um, sorry. The same ex the the exceptions that apply to common sorry. <laughs> the exceptions that apply to New South Wales offences where people are sentenced without conviction do not apply in Commonwealth matters. Okay. Um, good to know. Um, so, in addition to obviously um, what's understood to be the very onerous conditions of being on um, the child protection register, what what are the, some further consequences that we might need to advise clients of um, where they are at risk um, of going on the register, Diane? I think first, your client needs to know how long they are going to be required to report for. So the reporting periods are broken down into eight years for Class 2 offences, 15 years and then life. So if your client is facing charges for a Class 1 offence, then you would need to advise them about the, the length of the reporting period that will follow if they were to plead guilty to that offence or what might be available to them as an alternative and whether an alternative might include an um, eight-year reporting period. Also, the decision to plead guilty or not guilty may be influenced by the risk of a reporting period that is um, 15 years to life. That may be a risk that um, encourages your client to defend the matter or alternatively securing a lower reporting period may change their decision to plead guilty to a less serious charge. Incidental to this advice is the nature of reporting. So you should be advising your client about what reporting will mean for them and you can go to the Act and to the reporting obligations and the nature of personal information that needs to be disclosed and also advise them about the fact that they won't be able to travel internationally without permission or they may be at risk of committing a criminal offence. You need to advise them of course that they will not get a working with children clearance. It's very unlikely where they are a registrable person. And also the risk that they may be subject to a child protection prohibition order. And that is a specific order that is made by the local court restricting the movements of a person or their behaviour generally. And that could include things like curfews, place restrictions, um, specific conditions about drug and alcohol use and contact with children. And so there, broadly there are a lot of issues that people need to be advised about in terms of what the register and reporting actually will mean to them. But the other really critical factor that solicitors need to be aware of when they are 
advising clients and more specifically negotiating with the prosecution about facts and charges is the definition of a same incident. Now, the same the definition of a same incident has been the source of considerable confusion leading to errors in the determination of reporting periods. And in my earlier example, I alluded to one of those which the police had not factored in the timing of the offences. Now, multiple offences can be treated as the same incident for the purpose of calculating reporting periods. So they're effectively bundled up into the same offence. So multiple class two offences that are committed against the same victim and within a 24-hour period can be considered as the same offence for calculating the reporting period. And I'd refer everyone to the definitions of the Act and familiarise yourself with that because it can have huge ramifications for your client and really significantly change how you negotiate um, class one or class two offences. Another factor... Sorry. Sorry, carry on, Diane. Um, Another factor to be aware of in relation to negotiations is that Form 1 offences for New South Wales charges and Section 16BA offences for Commonwealth charges are not considered part of the same incident, even though there's not a separate sentence. They would also be considered as to whether or not your client meets the definition of the same incident. So, for example... If you have a client who is charged with indecently assaulting... For example, if you have a client who is charged with sexual touching of a child and there is some ambiguity about whether or not the offending occurred over a 24-hour period or slightly longer, you would be inclined um, following... Sorry, it would be in your client's best interest even if one of those charges was to be taken into account on a form to ensure the facts reflected that they occurred within a 24-hour period as that would mean the difference between an eight-year reporting period versus a 15-year reporting period. Yes, that's really um, really interesting because... Earlier in the podcast, I spoke about the same issue, the same incident, uh, or multiple offences being considered part of the same incident in relation to children that might provide them with an exception um, for going onto the register um, at all. But when we talk about it in the context of adult offenders, it may be the difference between um, them reporting for uh, 15 years or them reporting for eight years. Yeah, a, a really big difference can be made as a really big difference can be made in the outcomes that your clients receive at that negotiating stage and that's not something that can be changed down the track there's no appeal options available to people in terms of whether or not um, their reporting periods can be reduced like that 
Yeah, and just touching on something else that you, you spoke about with those um, um, CPPOs, those Child Protection Prohibition Orders, um, it's probably worthwhile clearing up a little bit of confusion because I, I think some people um, in the community may um, be confused about um, what the difference between um, those orders and being on the register is. Some people might think that going on the register, um, the Child Protection Register will stop you from living in certain places or stop you from going near playgrounds or anything like that. Whilst the obligations of being on the register are extremely onerous, it's, it's only once a CPPO um, gets made that with those particular conditions um, that's going to stop you from engaging in those um, types of conduct. Absolutely. As a child protection prohibition order is not automatic um, and for that reason they should be subject to a rigorous defence if that's what your instructions are. Um, yeah. And, and I would just say that um, contravention of a child protection prohibition order and committing one of the offences under the Child Protection Offender Registration Act can trigger an extended supervision order to be made against that person at a later date. Yeah, right. Um, we should also note that um, reporting periods um, are halved when the registrable person um, is a child. So if a, the circumstances of their offending were such that they would be otherwise um, registered for 15 years and the magistrate or judge doesn't exercise their discretion to keep them off the register, then instead of 15 years, they would have to report for seven and a half years. I and mean, one final thing I wanted to say about um, the length of reporting obligations is that um, once your reporting obligations end, it does not mean that you are removed from the register. In fact, the opposite is true. You stay on the register for life. Um, it's only your reporting obligations that end. And what that means in real and practical terms is that while you remain on the register, the police can and do continue to collect um, intelligence um, about that person, which gets added to their file. Um, and if they are concerned um, that this person who's no longer subject to reporting requirements is nevertheless a risk um, to children, um, then they can apply to the court for a child protection prohibition order um, to restrict um, their behaviour in those terms. So I just it's worth making clear that while someone's obligations might end in terms of reporting, they actually still um, remain um, on the register. Yeah, that fact of lifetime registration is something that I think can be overlooked in the phase of advising your client about the ramifications of a plea or at the outcome of their matter. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that um, should be brought um, to a magistrate or judge's attention um, when you're making a Section 3, um, capital C, application for them to ex exercise their discretion. Um, that the fact that even though they would only have to um, report um, for a short period of time, they would nevertheless remain on the register um, for life. One of the other things I wanted to talk about um, in this podcast is um, offences, and particularly the offence of failing to comply with your reporting obligations, which is found at Section 17 of the Act. Um, that's a serious offence, and the LEC report reveals that custodial sentences are frequently imposed um, when people are convicted for this offence. It carries a maximum penalty of 500 penalty units, 
or imprisonment for five years um, or both. Um, why I want to talk about this section is because it is also often um, overlooked that within this section there is a defence of reasonable excuse. So a registrable person must not fail to comply with any of the person's reporting obligations without a reasonable excuse. And some of the things that may constitute a reasonable excuse are set out within the section, um, including the person's age, including whether the person has a disability that affects their ability to understand or comply with um, those obligations. Um, often, um, when we're dealing with children or we're dealing with people that have cognitive um, difficulties, it can be easy to overlook the fact that there's a ready-made defence um, provided for within the Act. So if you are dealing with anyone, a child or an adult, that's charged with this offence, um, it's really incumbent on you to get full and thorough instructions about why it is they failed to comply with their reporting obligations. Um, it may well be that they have a very good reason um, that would ground a reasonable excuse um, defence. Um, as a matter of practicality, if you're running a hearing um, on this point, it may be worthwhile um, tendering your client's Form 3, which is the notice that they're given about all of the things that they have to report about. There's an example of a Form 3 that's attached to my paper, which will be made available in the um, notes um, of this podcast. Um, you, you will see when you look at the Form 3, is a form that is extremely dense. The writing is very small. Um, it's extremely detailed um, and it's very difficult to follow. Um, even for an adult and even for somebody who's neurotypical. Um, in circumstances where many of our clients do not fall into those categories, um, I think you, it would be persuasive um, to a magistrate for them to actually see the form that they had to understand um, and ground a reasonable excuse um, defence. So I think we're coming towards the end of um, the podcast today. Um, what Diane and I wanted to do We'll leave you with just a couple of brief um, top tips, a little summary of some of the things we've talked about today, um, some things to keep in mind um, and to consider when you're dealing with children and adults um, that are at risk of registration or that are on the Child Protection Register. So, Diane, you can go first. Thanks, Jim. Uh, following on from the observations we've made about the LEC report, if you have the opportunity to act for somebody who is presently a registrable person, whether that is because they are appearing before the court for failing to comply with their reporting obligations or for a child protection prohibition order or subsequent criminal proceedings, it's worthwhile taking that opportunity to review the fact of their registration and reporting periods to ensure there haven't been errors made by New South Wales Police. And the second thing I'd like to leave everyone with is that we've got a lot of resources about the issues that we've talked about in this podcast and the people who are responding to applications or not sure about the advice that they need to give you can always contact us and we'll be able to assist you or refer you to the resources that will help you. Yeah, just adding to that point, um, there'll be some papers and tip sheets um, released as um, part of this podcast. Um, in my paper, you will find a flowchart um, which hopefully um, demonstrates in an easy-to-follow form the circumstances in which a person will be and will not be a registrable person, I encourage you to check it out 
I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. <laughs> um, it's a very good paper. <laughs> and another tip that I've got um, is obviously, as I mentioned before, I really strongly encourage people to make Section 3C applications um, after um, a sentence has been imposed. Um, as I just said, be aware of the built-in defence um, for failing to comply with your reporting obligations being the defence of reasonable excuse and obviously take into consideration all of those aspects about Class 1, Class 2 um, and the timings um, of offences um, in your negotiations um, with the Crown and with the police. So I think that's everything that we wanted to cover today, isn't it, Diane? I think so. Um, we wanted to extend our thanks to Emma Mania for helping us organise this podcast and to Sandra George for helping us record it. Thank you very much. <laughs> All Thanks, right. Are we, are we done? Yeah.